Hi, Greg Schwartz from Valtex Future Studio here. I want to give Rethink Retail's podcast listeners an invitation to an online event we're having on June 9th about the future of retail customer engagement post-pandemic. The event will give you fascinating insights into retail's evolution over the next five years and include expert discussion, technology demonstrations, and optional breakout sessions on different topics. The event is on June 9th. Register here on the link below or go to futurestudio.valtech.com. That's futurestudio.valtech.com. We'd love for you to join us. Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. We're kicking off another episode today with my guest, Matt Alexander. It's great to have you on the Rethink Retail Show. You are the co-founder of Neighborhood Goods. This is an extremely buzzed about new concept. It's not your grandmother's department store. You're completely reimagining what it means to be a brick and mortar retailer and mixing that traditional store environment with the frictionless technology and bringing brand experiences to life. That's my interpretation of Neighborhood Goods through the media I've seen, the conversations I have, I will plan on making an actual stop to see a store. I haven't yet, but I know you guys are in Plano, New York, and Austin. So Matt, it's great to have you on the show. I want to talk to you about how to create experiences that aren't boring and what you think about the future. So I want to kick it off by just giving you the floor and letting you tell our listeners a little bit about what inspired Neighborhood Goods and about yourself. First of all, thanks for having me on. And that was a pretty good summary. I mean, we describe ourselves as being a new type of department store of sorts, which is varying degrees of accurate, right? You know, we have fixed physical spaces as well as digital experiences where for the consumer, you walk in and you see most major product categories represented, anything from home to kids to apparel, beauty and wellness, and otherwise. Uh, We have our own restaurants in the space. It's our staff. It's our design and fixtures. So it presents as sort of a small format department store or uh, sort of a larger scale boutique. But the brands that you find inside the space are brands you typically wouldn't otherwise find in physical retail. They're much more of a progressive mix of modern and digitally native brands mixed with some local sort of younger companies, as well as some, you know, higher growth, big names, sort of international, more established brands. And instead of being there on a sort of wholesale static basis, just on a sea of racks. Instead, it's more of an ever-changing footprint. So that landscape of brands and products and categories represented is changing all the time. So the points of consistency, restaurant, team, fixtures, create something that feels a little bit like a department store. So it helps set those expectations and helps you sort of wrap your head around what you're in. But for brands, it's sort of For them, it can be a lot of different things. So you might look at it as a real estate channel to test a new area in the country. For others, it's more of a marketing channel to get in front of more people. For others, it's a sales channel. Of course, traditionally, it might be there for brand adjacency and otherwise. And so a lot of them look at it as sort of a hop, skip and a jump away from having their own pop-up, but without having to staff it, build it, design it, manage it. And so The ultimate result is that for the consumer, you get something really vibrant, exciting, interesting that's changing all the time, anchored by 
F&B events in a more normal sort of time and just a really exciting mix of some exclusive brands, products and otherwise. Meanwhile, for the brands, it's something that can be more efficient than wholesale, than opening their own stores or otherwise, and certainly much more informative as well in terms of data and otherwise. And so we launched in Plano first, then New York, then Austin. Austin was open for less than 24 hours before the pandemic hit and I closed all the stores. We've also been online the whole time. And so that's us, sort of a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But at at the core of it, something that presents in a, honestly, a fairly traditional way to the end consumer, where it's just a very progressive, exciting mix of brands that's presented through a very relevant sort of angle and lens, but a lot of different things for all the brands and partners that we work with as well. Sure. And there's so many things that pop out. You know, you spoke about pop-ups, speaking of, and you spoke about the localization, bringing in not only those high growth brands that are more national, even global, but then some of the really local flair that touches on the community feeling. And I was listening to one of your interviews before we hopped on this one. I forget the show name, but it was about nine months ago, I think is when it aired. And you were talking about you actually do have um, computer vision and you share that data with your brands. So how what's that experience been like? I mean, that seems that it would be hugely valuable. Yeah, I mean, I think when we first got started, a lot of the basis for it, right, was this recognition that for this more progressive, modern mix of brands that have started exclusively from a digital perspective, the customer acquisition costs are rising very quickly and more and more brands are being created, becoming more and more niche and pursuing the same sort of target demographic of people. So becoming more and more expensive. Physical retail has been seen as a potential solution for a lot of those brands. So you see brands that have sworn up and down that they would never go into physical, like Everlane now doing it quite aggressively. Meanwhile, a lot of digitally native direct consumer brands that are sort of really known for their digital presence, like Warby Parker and Peloton and otherwise, they now generate more revenue from their stores than they do from their website. So it's really this sort of shift to have more of a balanced approach and recognizing the utility of digital, which is obvious, and then also really digging into all sorts of different opportunities with physical to complement what you're doing online. And so the challenge remains for all of them that the costs of getting into physical incredibly difficult, cumbersome, hard to handle logistics and otherwise. So the basis for our thinking was to ostensibly lower the barrier to entry. As a part of that, speaking to things like computer vision and otherwise, if you were you know, the founder of a young direct consumer brand that never dealt with physical retail before, from your own website and from all these different ad channels and paid media channels that you pursue, you would be under the impression, rightfully so, that every aspect of your business can be extremely well quantified and analyzed just off the shelf, right? That's just the way of digital business. Getting into physical, you would assume today that you would at least be able to approximate a decent amount of that, right? Especially if you're using the same system to be a point of sale and otherwise. But the reality is that you can certainly get some, but not a lot. And the ability to capture something as simple as foot traffic can be quite complicated and quite expensive to do. And so something that became important for us from the beginning was just thinking about, you know, what would you assume would be table stakes for data that you would be able to get from an investment into the physical world? And so for us, we started to think about how to capture traffic, demographics, and how we could sort of marry that with the point of sale to have more of a complete sense of people that come through the space. And so 
you don't want to encroach on people's privacy and you don't want to go into a really creepy position with the whole thing. But it is really useful to have a general sense of who's coming to the space, why, and how that breaks down differently from one space to the next. And then behaviorally, what's different inside that space for different groups of people and why they may gravitate towards a certain brand or another, whatever it is. And so we invested to build that into the space back in 2018 when we opened in Plano, and then we've done it uh, in all stores since. And it's been incredibly helpful. The thing that we had sort of been under the assumption of, probably wrongly up front, was that we thought that just the data by itself was kind of the key. And it's obviously super helpful, but just getting you know, raw sales, your top performers and some traffic isn't incredibly useful by itself, where you really get into really useful information and really sort of interesting sort of perspectives around it is when you dig into more anecdotal feedback and analysis, often from our store teams that comes around the data. So we built out a platform that launched last year that provides real-time data to our partners. We haven't rolled it out too much, actually. We've sort of done it on a more staggered basis over the past year or so, just because with people wearing masks and otherwise it wreaks havoc on how you might be able to discern demographics. It's true. Yeah, you've got some bias in there. But it turns out into you know a very interesting vehicle to sort of get some of that very transactional, very simple data into just a very sort of simple pipeline. So you always have that and it frees up a lot of time for us to get more into that anecdotal information, to get more into that analysis and to get more into a creative position around what we could do to boost business in a given location or, or otherwise. And so the data piece, I would say, is an ongoing effort, right? So we pass along opted in email addresses, all these sorts of things. So for the consumer, they end up you know, being able to hear from these brands, not by default, they have to opt in, right? But it allows for that connection. And then obviously for the brands, it can operate in a similar way to their own stores where they can sort of understand a little bit more of the customers. So that's certainly been a key component but there's always more you can extract and there's always more you can analyze as well. And it sounds like, as you said, it grows over time. And to be able to truly get the insights about the creative atmosphere, you know, how things are laid out, what attracts people will take a bit of learning over the years to tweak it. I wanted to ask, and by the way, I actually, I had a conversation with Chris Breen from Public Goods. Um, He was on the podcast the other week and he mentioned you guys and he's like, I love working with them. Really easy to uh, partner with. So it's cool to hear that perspective from the brands you work with. Is it shared data in terms of if I'm a customer and I come in and I buy something from Public Goods, am I opting in to all of the brands you work with or is that optional? What's it look like? No. So like if you come in and shop with public goods for the first time and you've never been to neighborhood goods before, the conversation would generally go, would you be interested in receiving email from us and public goods? And yes or no. And then if you say yes, we'll pass that along in a secure way. If you say no, it obviously just goes nowhere and nothing really happens from there. Some people may just want to hear from us. Some people may just want to hear from the brand. So there's a little bit of nuance there, but pretty simple. And then, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of sensitivity there as well, because like we may have some brands come into the space for a year, for two weeks, whatever it is, it really varies. And one of the most fierce competitors might come in a few months later. And so the last thing these brands want is that we'd be passing data around. So we look at it through much more of an anonymized lens. So we can understand that a given demographic comes in and behaves a particular way versus another. And that's very useful. And we can understand 
from a very high level perspective, of course, you know, XYZ cash grade performs particularly well and resonates with certain types of people, but we're not passing one brand's customers or data to another. And so it, it is quite siloed. There's no way to sort of get blanket opted into all brands unless you happen to come in and shop from every single brand at once. Right. Then you opt into all of them. And Matt, you're a young guy and, you know, our team was like, what inspired you? That's something we really wanted to ask. When did, was it you wrote down on a napkin when you were at dinner? How did the idea come to reinvent brick and mortar? Yeah. So um, I met my co-founder, Mark, in 2017. He's very prominent in the world of retail real estate and sort of knows everyone in that world and has helped a lot of great brands get into physical retail, anything from Warby to these days, Lululemon, Apple, all sorts of others. And he was working on a mixed-use development in Plano called Legacy West, which we are now open in. I've been there. And he was working on a food hall at one end of the development and was thinking about the opportunity to have something that sort of echoed a little bit of that thinking at the opposite end of the development from a product perspective. And so it started to think about, as he was working with more of these digital brands, that they clearly resonated well with the customer, but it was still really difficult for a lot of them to get into physical. So he was thinking a lot about that. Meanwhile, for me, back in 2014, I launched a sort of nonprofit of sorts called Unbranded, where we provide free retail and event space every holiday season to all sorts of different brands, artists, chefs, what have you. Just a very small little sort of communal effort here in Dallas that's really had a, a groundswell of popularity and and real success, where it's it's really sort of had a great community built around it. It's always shown up in a lot of different areas. It's largely run by the city and has been for, for years uh, or by a nonprofit in town called Downtown Dallas Inc. And so with that, I had really seen up close the real impact of having more of a social experience around more modern brands and also around having some of these younger brands that have really fierce and loyal customers allowing for and facilitating that interaction. And so I've been thinking for years about what a more permanent version of that would look like because the, a more pop-up sort of free version has you know, myriad shortcomings where some brands come and they're really well capitalized and prepared and have a great setup. Others come along and they have full-time jobs and they can't be there all day. Others come in just for the social experience, not just necessarily for the retail. And so there's just a lot of complexity. And so I decided to think about what a framework would look like. And so when we met, you know, Mark's perspective was that there was a huge opportunity and he wanted to see if something like Unbranded could be the solve. And I felt strongly that there was a permanent version and there was a concept that could exist here, but it wasn't necessarily exactly Unbranded, but maybe something a little bit different. And so um, went from there and wrote up this document that Mark refers to as my manifesto that was, sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, three, four page manifesto. I referred to it as just a department store at the time uh, with a capital D and a capital S around how this could work. And and a lot of that manifesto remains very much intact today. And, and it speaks to the philosophy around a changing sort of balance of brands, how we would approach technology, how you would assume you would need a certain level of data to report back to the brands, how you'd think about having a uniform approach to aesthetics and otherwise. And so that was really when it started to take shape. And so that was early to mid 2017 and incorporate the company from there and started rolling a lot. Very cool. And it's a complex proposition you have, right? With all of the different business deals and, and branding elements throughout the store and all of the privacy that you have to make sure is around the data that you collect. What is 
been the biggest hurdle as a founder where you were like, wow, I didn't expect this to be something I'd have to be solving for so long that you learned from? I mean, there's a lot of different challenges, right? We're very fortunate to have an amazing team. And, you know, Mark, having a huge amount of experience and having a very successful company in the real estate space has obviously been incredible. We have amazing investors. They give us great access to brands and media and, you know, great potential sort of future sort of sites for locations. And then we obviously have an amazing team in our stores, in our HQ and otherwise where uh, people are tackling a lot of different problems all the time and sort of putting their own fingerprints all over the concepts. And so there's been a lot of things we and assumptions we made that we got wrong. So like in the early days, when I had originally been thinking about how the space would show up in Plano with our architects, uh, with Mark, with all these different people, there was an initial assumption that we were going to have 10 to 15 brands in that space. So it's about 14,000 square feet total. We wanted a certain amount of social space in between. And then if you break it down into sort of anywhere from 100 to 500 square feet per brand, you end up with a real grid. And we built in fluidity and we built modular fixtures. And we really assumed that it was going to be more of this sort of traditional sort of pop-up type experience where you would have his one brand on a very discreet basis, here's another one. But when we launched, we launched with 26 brands or thereabouts, maybe close to 30. And then these days, at any given time, that space has more like 60 brands in it. And in the relative near future, all these spaces will probably have somewhere between 80 to 100 at any given time. And so what we found is that the consumer doesn't necessarily respond to more of these distinct brand moments. It's certainly an opportunity, right? But what's much more interesting and easy to pass and something very engaging is if you organize a little bit more by category and a little bit more almost by department, right? In the most traditional sense. And that really allows for more discovery. And if you find the balance there between brands that come in and sort of show up on a very temporary basis versus brands that you want to sort of ostensibly curate and have there for a longer term purpose because you really believe in them, there's real utility in that balance there. And so that's something we've been continuing to unlock from the beginning. And so what we got right was the approach to what sort of brands would be there, the right sort of real estate, the right sort of approach to events, the right sort of approach to F&B. And those things have been growing like crazy, but like it's been a lot of things, you know, whether it's around how we would divvy up the space to how we thought about how many uh, fishing rooms we needed, how we thought about the floor plan. We had some areas that were elevated, some that weren't, and we just didn't really need to do that. And like, mm. we also really thought about modularity in terms of fixtures, which has been important, but also not as important as we would have expected in the early days. There were also a lot of things that we really had to sell people on to really build trust, right? So upfront, the prospect of ostensibly giving us your products on consignment and then leaving us sure. to tell your brand story, not you, and us controlling more of the aesthetic than you would typically, that was challenging for a lot of people to wrap their head around. Um, and we had so many different long conversations about it. Having Us having a website was incredibly controversial in the early days for brands mm. being worried about us cannibalizing their own uh, digital channels, which is obviously crucial. And a lot of them had also done some pop-ups with larger department stores and been really burnt in those relationships where some of these department stores will commit some of these cardinal sins, like taking out ads that use the same keywords as you on Google, 
Facebook and otherwise and ostensibly drive up your customer acquisition costs. Others would not sell through a full assortment of products and put it in one of their outlet stores. So there was a lot of this sort of bedrock of bad experiences, questions about how it would work, concerns about trust that we had to sort of surmount. We did that very quickly, right? And so we started out and there was probably a small smattering of product online. Um, These days, just about all of our brands are online. And we've really sort of built more of that trust. And so if you walked into our space in Plano, then into New York, then into Austin, you would see a pretty clearly evolving sort of thesis around design and otherwise. And so we're in the process right now of investing and refreshing our store in Plano and loads of other opportunity there. But, you know, in terms of things we got right, wrong, lessons learned, I mean, what I would say is that the idea and the core philosophy and what we've set out to do, some of these core things that we've been opinionated about, about like not paying staff commission, but just paying them more in general, providing full benefits and otherwise... Mm around how we think about layout and not allowing big walls to sort of bifurcate the space. These things have remained really core to our philosophy from the very beginning and haven't really changed. What has really changed and grown is just the fact that we've been learning a lot on the fly. And then you throw in the middle of all of it, a pandemic, right? Which yeah, that pandemic thing. Challenge and learning, right? There's a lot you pick up and go along the way, but even with late stage pandemic, hopefully, we find ourselves in an exciting position now where we're sort of charging after a lot of these ideas that remain really core to the philosophy we've had from the very beginning. So I think we remain very much there. There's myriad challenges we've faced, certainly in the past year, that have been uh, stressful and have really sort of given us a lot of pause and otherwise. But there's also been incredibly exciting moments and, and a lot to look forward to. So, you know, it's just the way it goes in building a business. Absolutely. And I think... It's fun because if I had to guess, you probably have a long list of brands waiting to get approved and get into your space and to look back just a few years ago, like two or three years ago, and you were trying to convince people, just trust us, it'll be amazing. And now now the tables have turned and I'm sure all of the greatest D2C brands are interested in your space because you were named also one of the most innovative companies last year, right? Yeah, was that last year? Uh, by yeah. Fast Company. That was about Congratulations. two weeks before we had to close the stores. Yeah, we entered on a real tear into last year. The brakes were really put on uh, for a moment there. But but yeah, we were very fortunate there. I think we, we received that award, another one from Chain Story Age and one or two others, right? All in the same sort of few weeks stretch there early last year. And it was right after we'd opened in New York. So we'd just been open for 13 months or thereabouts, maybe 14 months. Really exciting to get that sort of ratification of the thinking and to have, yeah, like I think a lot more brands start to really wrap their head around it. Like one of the core things from the very beginning was that each of our spaces would be different. And then our philosophy around real estate was very particular, where we thought about probably five different types of real estate and what you know, feature set you're unlocking with each one and how that might suit different brands for different reasons. So like brands like Dollar Shave Club, we were the first of physical retail. They opened up with us in Plano to accomplish very particular goals versus what they were doing in New York with us versus what they were doing in Austin with us. Very distinct from one to the next. And I think as we were able to really sort of demonstrate that and show more of this ecosystem mentality and more of what we've been talking about in terms of events, how we would really cultivate this feeling of community how we would sort of follow through on a lot of the value systems we had talked about. Yeah, it really fostered a really loyal sort of group of brands and a really exciting sort of mix of brands that apply through our site every day or show up in our inboxes wanting to do something. Or us, you know, obviously reaching out to loads ourselves that we get really excited about. So Absolutely. And you mentioned events. 
Are there events that are in the near future? What, what were some of the ones that were really successful pre-COVID? The first really most noticeable, uh, notable one even was uh, Serena Williams, who's an investor of ours. She launched her size-inclusive product line, Serena Great, with us like two weeks after we opened in Plano and did it as a live podcast with Ashley Graham. Wow, big names. Yeah, it's a really amazing thing to have happen for a brand new store, right? And got us a huge amount of attention. And since then, we've done some amazing things. We've launched a collaboration with a local streetwear brand by way of Dallas. We've done conferences with groups like Create and Cultivate and Amex. Mm -hmm. We've done pitch competitions with incubators like RevTech. We've had you know, little communal events like kids writing letters to Santa and otherwise. And then we've had, you know, just so, so, so many different things. And so, you know, the real tragedy for us was that we were really hitting our sort of like rhythm in terms of those events in the back end of 2019. And we had just opened New York and that was obviously going to be this amazing vehicle. And so we never have really been able to fully explore what events will look like there and in Austin. And we've certainly been doing a few safely outdoors, otherwise that don't require crowds, but that's something we'll be bringing back in the relative near term. And so like for Austin in particular, we had this amazing lineup of initial events with some amazing partners, some exclusive collaborations we were developing and all of those got put on hold. And so those are all coming back now. And so like oh, good. Uh, we are adjoined to the first so house in Texas, for example. And so we have a lot of partnerships brewing with them in our Austin space and lots of others that are sort of there that have been in our minds for a long time that we haven't been able to do. So it really varies. I mean, right before the pandemic shut everything down, Salesforce had just bought out our space in Chelsea to do a panel event that evening. We've had all sorts. And so that was something that had really been gaining momentum for us and we'll certainly come back. And so we've got a few coming up and we've been doing a few since. And we've certainly had during the pandemic, the primary vehicle for it has been using our kitchens as ghost kitchens uh, for mm -hmm. delivery only concepts and pop-ups, which has been incredibly cool and a whole new aspect of our business that we've never really thought about before where we've brought in groups like Sandoichi and 8 Mile Pies and Chop Chop to come in and do mm -hmm. these restaurant activations that have brought out hundreds and hundreds of people to line up in a safe way. And so we're all itching to get back into it, but we have to wait until it's safe. And, and most importantly, even now that CDC guidance has evolved um, around vaccinated people not needing to wear masks indoors, that's great and, and obviously really exciting. But the critical thing is making sure our teams feel okay about that. And, you know, I think for them, they've been having to wear masks all day, every day to work for the past year. And that's hard, really hard. And yeah, it's really easy to sort of just say we're not doing it anymore, but there's a real human and sort of psychological and emotional cost there. And so we're trying to be really thoughtful about how we sort of stage back into events and make sure it doesn't sort of... Feel too soon. Yeah, that's great. And what about the commons? I just want to touch on that for a second because that was a program you guys launched during 2020. Yeah, I mean, so we opened Austin March 13th and then we closed all the stores on March 14th. On that Monday, so two days later... I was back in Dallas working from home and we started to dig into various different opportunities we saw in front of us. And so we quickly turned on like charitable donations with all transactions online. We improved buy online pickup in store. We turned on same day delivery and all sorts of other new initiatives there that, you know, really drastically grew our digital business, which was really exciting. Alongside it though, I was thinking about what the sort of, opportunity was going to look like when we were able to reopen the stores and you know 
even in those early days, there started to be a lot of conversation about how the pandemic was going to probably accelerate a lot of the problems for more established retailers and could potentially accelerate some of the positives for a younger retailer like us and really ratify some of that thesis. And so we started to think about, A, what can we do that would be a great way to give back to community and support local brands and, you know, local makers and artists and chefs and otherwise that were really hurting. But also what could we do that would be really localized and relevant and interesting for our customers that would really sort of give them something to rally around that you wouldn't really be able to do if you were a larger retailer. And so we went from idea to branded, named and launched in under a week. And it was this notion of creating essentially what had been the precursor to Neighborhood Goods for Me unbranded. It was essentially a grown-up version of that where we wanted to just provide free space to anyone that had been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. And so we ended up having a huge amount of applications and had different groups come through with lots of different brands in each, lots of different categories represented, some very local brands, some much bigger, where they came in for free. Essentially, we took a tiny, tiny percentage of sales from some of them just to help fund a little bit of it, but but nothing meaningful, sort of under 5% in most cases. And with that, it just gave us something really exciting to look forward to and rally around as a team. It had been a really hard stretch right there. And then for a lot of these younger brands, it gave them something to be really excited about and proud about and sort of get that audience out to see it and shop it online, in person. Otherwise, for some of them, it was this opportunity to show up in a store in New York for the first time ever and and to really dabble with this sort of ecosystem. And a a lot of them ended up becoming permanent for us, brands like Soko and a number of others. And so, um, yeah, it was a great little initiative and it was a fun one to work on in in that time and gave everyone something to a real focal point. But but yeah, now we're excited to see how we bring it back this year on, on a different basis. So that'll become more of a permanent initiative for us. And it sounds like it was coming back to your roots a little bit when with the pivot with Unbranded uh, and how that operated and launching the commons to help your fellow retailers. And when I hear the story, I'm like, wow, Matt, that's impressive. To work so hard to open a new store and then have it close the very next day is super defeating. I think some people would just head straight to the bar and say, I'm giving up. Like, what was the motivation to quickly create something else and say, I'm not giving up. We're just going to do something different. We're going to do it fast. I mean, there was a real roller coaster right then. We had come into that year on a real high. New York had just opened and was doing ridiculously well. Plano had just turned a year old and was doing incredibly well year over year. Austin was on the horizon. The mix of brands we were working with was amazing. We were winning some awards. And then, you know, abruptly it all stopped and we had to go into layoffs and furloughs and pay reductions and all sorts of, you know, very challenging things. You know, we did an announcement when we closed saying, you know, we would be close to two weeks. It was the same thing sort of everyone said. And going into conversations over the next couple of weeks, it sort of quickly became clear that we weren't going to be close to two weeks. It was going to be more like months, right? And so we just had to really sort of adapt. And so we went through this really sort of tough stretch right there, just in a very condensed period of time. And coming out the other side of the furloughs and layoffs and all those tough decisions, right, we needed something to really rally around and we needed something to give us a bit of a guiding light and something that would push us all forward, right? And and so we landed on this prospect of a lot of brands were going through something similar at the time. A lot of restaurateurs were losing 
their spaces. Um, a lot of artists and musicians that, you know, really rely on live events and otherwise suddenly lost that platform. And there was this collective sort of moment that we were all in right there. And so we just really rallied around the idea of like, well, maybe this is something we could do that would give back a little bit. And it's not going to, you know, it's not going to change anything for anyone on a, on a massive sort of scale, but it was the right sort of human and sort of emotional thing for us to begin thinking about and doing. And it helped us sort of reorient ourselves, right? And so like it, there was all the work we were doing digitally, which, you know, paid off. There was a huge amount of creativity going into the restaurants and otherwise, but we needed that thing to really look forward to and to really build towards. And historically that had always been store openings for us. And so we found it in the commons. And then from there, you know, I think we had expected just this really depressed demand for the rest of the year. And we certainly saw lower traffic, but conversion was way up and performance like blew away our expectations. And we ended up having a real growth year and that was not on the cards at all. And so, you know, there's plenty we got wrong. There's plenty we could have done better, but ideas like the commons and experiments like that, that's always been really cool to who we are. We always want to keep trying new things and, and, and sort of testing new ideas and, it was the right thing for that moment and and it was the right thing that we'll keep doing, right? Um, but it was also just a great sort of thing for all of us to really rally around and just see what we could do in some small way that might help some people or might give people a way of getting to know some new uh, people in their cities, even from a distance or otherwise. And so that's really where it came from and really what gave us a lot of shape around it. I like that point you made about being the guiding light to sort of reground everyone and give you a path to head towards. And congratulations that it's, it has been successful and it's worked out. Sounds like you have great teams. I did have to ask you, and you don't have to answer it, but you know, if you were a big department store right now, Macy's is doing some weird stuff. I think it's called the backstage. I was in it the other day, looked really bad. What would you do? I mean, is there a chance for them anymore or... Like, what would you, what change would you make? My philosophy is relatively simple on this sort of thing in as much as I think a lot of retailers have drastically overcomplicated the problem at hand, which is ultimately whether or not you have relevant product to sell to people in the stores and are you presenting it in a relevant context, right? So no one can really beat the utility of buying toothpaste online. I can order it right now. It'll be here in a couple of hours. If I know what I'm looking for, it's amazing. If I don't, it's not this great. That utility piece breaks when you don't know exactly what you're looking for or if you don't have built-in trust, right? So this on-ramp into discovering new brands, to having a different sort of identity and dimension around those products is massively important and it's a huge opportunity and physical is the ideal mechanism for it. And so department stores as they were 100 years ago were localized, smaller format, really sort of built around a curated mix and saying no far more than they say yes. These days, they're all minimum 100,000 square feet have, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of products. And they're kind of speaking to everyone and no one at the same mm-hmm. time. And, and so, so much time is spent on smart mirrors and, you know, the right sort of camera technology and all these other sorts of ideas but it's all just window dressing, right? Like it, having digital, like better digital signage or smart mirrors, I don't care, like as the consumer, like why that right. doesn't make me go to your store. What makes me go to your store is 
A, if there's something convenient about it that really does trump something digital for me. Um, but really B is if I can get something there that I might be interested in buying online or otherwise, but I can get it in a radically different context and I can really understand it and I can see it in a socialized way, which is ultimately how most products that we purchase exist, right? And so I think it really comes down to a simple premise there, which is how do you have the right products in the room? And all retailers are capable of doing that. It's just sort of a reset. So I think Macy's has been doing some smaller format stores like the Market by Macy's, which Rachel Shagman put together um, before she left. And it's great. Uh, it's it, Or it was when I saw it pre-pandemic. And, you know, Nordstrom has Nordstrom Local and some of these other concepts. But, you know, for most of them, the, the irrevocable problem right now is that they're attached to malls. And there are great malls that will do continue to do amazingly well, but there's a lot that won't. And the U.S. inescapably is over-retailed and there will be a correction there. And so it's not to say that physical retail is dead, although that often becomes the narrative. It's really more that there's just an overdue need to sort of simplify and really understand the place of physical retail in context with a more digital universe. And so for us, you know, we just launched the marketplace as a new con, a new uh, category for us. We just launched CPG and we launched it in Austin. And it's not just about throwing a bunch of CPG products in the room and calling it a day. Uh, there's great concepts that have really small format grocery concepts out there and convenient concepts. Ours is more about how we socialize them. So how we introduce those products on the menu, how we see that in a world in which that discovery piece where you walk past it in Whole Foods is insufficient for building a relationship with it and really forming an understanding of what it is and the potential of it. And that more direct personal interaction with it is really the crucial thing from my perspective. And so I think all retailers are capable of really building in an interesting way there. You hit on relevancy. That was a key word you used. You said just being relevant to the consumers is a core challenge that a lot of the department stores are facing, in your opinion. I've said it a million times before about us, but I believe our core currency as a business and certainly as an industry is relevance, right? That if we have irrelevant product, why would someone show up? And we can probably mask that for a while by just hosting loads of events or doing really cut rate stuff, um, just throwing more and more product in the space or putting loads of technology in there, whatever it is, making it sort of hyper experiential. But the consumer is smart, smarter than all of us. And they know when they're being sold to. As soon as you lose that reason to really be talking to them, it's a struggle. And so that's why you see a lot of these brands that really grow off the back of email marketing for argument's sake, it's a really slippery slope because everyone sort of forgets that everyone hates receiving email. <laughs> and so as yeah. soon as you lose track of customer behavior and preference, it's really hard to come back from that. And that's kind of the problem that a lot of these department stores face is that they made a pretty outset specific decision probably two decades ago that this digital thing that was happening wasn't that relevant to them. And then they also have made decisions around evolving customer preference, where if you talk to you know, someone in their early to mid-20s, let's say, about what they see to be a luxury product, it's going to be radically different than what someone would tell you that works inside of a larger, quote-unquote, luxury department store. And that's a massive problem and discrepancy, right? And so the resolution there is just by listening. And it's also about recognizing that you're never going to be a finished product. 
And so I think for us, what's always been core to our identity is that we see ourselves as being fluid and that we are going to keep trying ideas. We are going to get some things wrong, that we aren't trying to be the shiniest object in the room. We're trying to be a group of people trying to contribute something interesting. And sometimes we're going to get that right. Sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But as long as we're really in orbit around this idea of relevance, then ultimately we'll probably be going the right direction and we'll be we'll be able to find our way. But as soon as you sort of lose track of that, and you lose track of the ability to have a point of view, and you lose track of the ability to be able to speak to people, it's really tough. And so that's kind of the challenge for a lot of these larger retailers these days, I think. Well said, Matt. And I know that you're a busy guy and I want to be respectful of your time. So I'd like to wrap up by asking what's next for neighborhood goods? What's on the horizon? The most near term, I'm having a baby. Um, Congratulations. Going to take a little bit of a paternity leave this summer, which is exciting. Big things for us. I mean, we're back into expansion. So I mentioned it, but March, April last year, we really didn't know what to expect. We really thought we knew that we weren't going anywhere as a business but we didn't know what customer demand was going to look like. And we thought we were just going to have to be in this position to weather a storm for a really long time. And that just wasn't the case. Uh, Demand came back very quickly and the business has been doing really well. Um, And so now for us coming into this year with, we just, you know, launched a collaboration fairly recently with the arrivals, just launched the marketplace and CPG. Our restaurants have been doing really, really well. And we're just on a really exciting path there with lots of big new stuff coming probably this summer. And so we've been really sort of organizing ourselves around this idea of reintroducing ourselves to the customer. And so more brands, new categories, new ways of laying out the space, a new digital experience for us is all on the cards, but most crucially is new spaces. And so nothing to share there quite yet, but we will be and are signing leases and sort of taking advantage of the opportunity we see there and really looking to sort of shift back into more of that, you know, mentality of growth and more of that mentality of experimentation rather than being in more of a defensive mentality as we had to be last spring, summer. And so um, lots of opportunity we see, plenty of concern still about the pandemic and plenty of things to be thinking about uh, societally and all sorts of other considerations that could slow things down, change plans otherwise. But generally, we're looking ahead, coming off the back of a really exciting few months in our stores, um, where traffic is now meaningfully above what we were seeing over holiday, just organically. Um, Oh, excellent. We just see a lot of reason for optimism looking ahead. So lots more to come. Lots more to come. And if I'm a brand listening in to the show, how would I get in touch with you or Neighborhood Goods to learn more about how I can get into your store? Yeah, so... If you go to neighborhoodgoods.com, there's a work with us page um, that applies to both restaurant concepts as well as brands. You can always drop in an application right there that blasts out via Slack to our whole team and everyone has a look. Otherwise, you can always just reach out. Um, Hello at Neighborhood Goods or all sorts of other (laughs) obvious mechanisms to find us. Um, We always keep the chat there. Great. Well, Matt Alexander, co-founder of Neighborhood Goods, it was wonderful having you on the show today. I hope to have you again. And congratulations on both your personal life with your baby coming this summer and then your professional life. It was good to have you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.